So, uh, let's look at the moral argument, uh, which is connected a little bit to the ontological argument in as much as they're both arguments about value. Remember, we were talking about great making properties and objective value, and the concept of objective value is, of course, very relevant to the moral uh, argument, uh, well, at least this type of moral argument that we're going to look at. Uh, all of these arguments sort of come in, in families uh, of different, slightly different ways of putting it. And you see, I've even put this argument in two different ways, um, and again, you might like to just start off by, with your flowchart there, just focusing on the, the fact that these are logically valid arguments that don't play around with, with ambiguity of language, um, and that what we're really focusing on here is, is the issue of, well, are the premises all true or not? Um, so we have, um, if, if, if a god does not exist, objective moral values and duties don't exist, but objective moral values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. Or you could put it this way, you could say... If objective moral values exist, then God exists. Objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. Uh, as I said before, here by the term God, you're not going to get out the, 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 the full-bodied concept of God that the ontological argument gives you. You're going to get a sort of a slice of what we mean by God. So you could, you could put small G's in many of these arguments. Let's, let's go through the, the premises uh, one at a time. So let's start with, if God does not exist, objective moral values don't exist. Why well, think that that's more plausibly true than its denial? And in particular, of course, what do we mean by talking about objective moral values <coughs> wouldn't exist if there wasn't a God? This is the, the French uh, existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, who said this in a very famous lecture. He said, existentialists find it extremely disturbing that God does not, uh, no longer exists, that it's no longer sensible to believe in God. Um, for along with his disappearance goes the possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. It goes along with the, getting rid of the concept of God, says Sartre, you get rid of, of anywhere to kind of put the kind of things that objective values would be were they to exist. Uh, and therefore, if you get rid of God, you also have to let go of the idea that there are really these objective moral values. There'd no longer be any a priori good since there'd be no infinite and perfect consciousness to conceive of it. Uh, no sort of home for the, for the ideal of moral perfection to be instantiated in reality. That's the kind of way that he's approaching it. Or the English uh, atheist Julian Bugini says this, if there's no single moral authority, and in context he's clearly talking about God, we, ha we have in some sense to create values for ourselves, and that means that moral claims are not true or false. Richard Dawkins says the same thing. He says there's a distinction between factual claims that are true or false and moral claims about what you should or shouldn't do that are not true or false. Despite the fact that he'll then lumbast religion for being evil and say you shouldn't do that and so on, which is a bit inconsistent. Anyway, Bajini says, you may disagree with me, but you cannot say that I've made a factual error. Um, getting rid of the concept of objective values leaves you with, leaves you with say, subjective values or preferences, uh, more on a par with saying, um, 
I prefer the pistachio ice cream. No, I'd like the chocolate ice cream. I want pistachio. I'm not giving you pistachio. You You can disagree. But it's not like one of you has made a factual error in saying, I I prefer the pistachio. That's just your subjective preference. (laughs) But it's not like you're, you're right or wrong to be ordering the pistachio rather than the chocolate at the restaurant. It's, that's just, you know, relative to the individual. He was saying morality would become that kind of relative subjective realm if there's no single moral authority. And, and we're not just thinking here in terms of, of an authority that can impose morals because he's more powerful than you. It's not a might makes right kind of authority, we're we're thinking of the kind of authority that has the moral right to obligate you to prescribe how you behave, an authority that you are, objectively speaking, obligated to, whose instructions about morality you objectively ought to follow, that kind of authority. Uh, Bajini is talking about. Again, another famous British atheist, J.L. Mackey, who said this, um, if there are objective values, that is, again, to clarify, rather than sort of pistachio chocolate subjective disagreement, disagreements where one of you can be right or wrong. So we're talking about things not that we don't create the values, as Bajini talks about, rather these are things that that are things we discover to be true of reality. If there are such objective values as Mackie, as an atheist, they make the existence of a god more probable than it would have been without them. Thus we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of God. But of course Mackie is an atheist, so what does he do with this recognition? Well, he denies the existence of objective values and says, well, therefore, since... If there were objective values, that would be a good reason to believe in God. And since I don't believe in God, therefore, I'll have to pay the price tag, as it were, and be prepared to say there aren't any objective values. Indeed, he wrote a famous book called Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong. If we adopted instead a subjectivist account of morality, this problem wouldn't arise. Which brings us down to the question, well, which, which is actually the bigger problem, or price tags, as it were? Having to admit that there's a God, a moral authority, or having to deny that there are objective values? Well, you know, I know which I would <laughs> think is the bigger price tag to actually have to pay. Um, having to believe that God exists or having to believe that moral subjectivism is true. Um, that you can't go around saying things like, it is true that torturing small children for fun is wrong. You, you can only say, well, I wouldn't like doing that sort of thing myself. Um, <laughs> or we, we, we don't like that. We, we would pass a law saying, if you do that sort of thing, we'll punish you. Um, but we're not right to pass such a law not as if we're correctly describing the objective fact of the matter that you ought not to behave that way. It's just that 
know, different strokes for different folks. And if, and if your other culture disagrees with us, then we disagree, but it's not like one of us must be right and one of us must be wrong. So it comes down to this, this issue of objective moral values existing. If you've got good reason to affirm that premise then you would, rather than pay the price of denying it, it would be too high a price, if you've got good reason for acknowledging this, to pay in order to escape the conclusion that that follows from those two premises. Um, And indeed, atheists can often do a very good job of arguing that there are objective moral values. So this is an interesting dialectic, because Mackey, as an atheist, said, I think there's a good reason for thinking that there could only be objective moral values if there was a God. Those, they seem to be connected and stand or fall together. So I'll get rid of the objectivity of values. But there are other atheists who will say, no, look, we've got really good reasons for thinking that there are objective moral values. And they can, they can argue that and argue that well. But, of course, that kind of atheist will have to say, Mackey must be wrong to think that if you admit objective moral values, you have to admit a God, or that that's a good reason for believing in a God. They would have to say, you don't need to bring God into the picture. But if both of those categories of atheists are kind of half wrong, as it were, in the right way, if Mac is right that there's a connection between goodness and God, and if, say, Kai Nielsen is right that there is objective goodness well, then you've admitted both premises of the moral argument. So you can actually defend the moral argument by only quoting from atheist philosophers, <laughs> which, is, which is something that I like to do in, in debates. Uh, so Kai Nielsen on, on objective values says this. He says, moral truisms, um, the kind of things that philosophers chuck out there, like, you know, the Holocaust was wrong, uh, torturing small children for fun is, is something that you really should not do, uh, etc., um, these kind of moral truisms, says Nielsen, are as available to me or to any atheist as they are to the believer. Of course they are. <coughs> St. Paul says so in the letters of Romans. <laughs> Everyone's made in the image of God. Everyone has a, a, a conscience that sometimes condemns and sometimes um, lets them off the hook. Um, we can know whether or not we believe in God or scripture or whatever that you should love your children <laughs> and shouldn't, you know, unduly um, punish them too severely for things in life or, or whatever. You know, we, we, we know these kind of moral truisms. And often you will find when you present the moral argument, particularly to new atheists, they will respond by saying something like, how dare you say that atheists can't be good people? Uh, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, how dare you say that atheists can't know the difference between right and wrong? That's not what the moral argument claims. They, they attack a, a red herring. Again, um, the moral argument it, it doesn't say that. The moral argument is perfectly happy to admit that atheists can know and do and defend the reality of objective moral values. What it says they can't defend is any um, consistent position, worldview, that allows for the existence of such a thing as an objective moral value. They can't explain the existence of such a thing consistent with their assumption that there's no God. 
that's where the argument lies. So, yes, there is, these are truisms that were available to the atheists, and, and Nielsen says you can be confident of the truth of these moral truisms. They are more justified than any sceptical philosophical theory that would lead you to question them. So he's saying, given the moral truism, it is objectively wrong to torture small children just for kicks. He says, any argument that someone wants to try and give me to show that I'm wrong to think that would ultimately depend upon premises that were themselves less plausible than the premise, it is wrong to torture small children just for kicks. That, that, the, the obviousness of that truth would trump any uh, uh, starting point for an argument to the effect that I'm wrong about that. That is uh, Nielsen's argument, uh, just from the sort of, it's called the, the argument from moral intuition, from clear cases. Of course, there are hard cases, there are difficult things, there are things in morality where we don't know the answer, where we disagree. But that doesn't detract from the fact that there are clear cases. So the, the atheist Russ Schaefer-Landau um, says some moral views are better than others, <coughs> despite the sincerity of the individuals, cultures and societies that endorse them. Some moral views are true, others false, and my, my thinking them doesn't make them so. These are objective discoveries, not subjective inventions. Individuals and whole societies can be seriously mistaken when it comes to morality. The best explanation of this is that there are moral standards not of our own making. I think that's a good argument for moral objectivity. Uh, Frederick uh, Nietzsche, or Nietzsche, depending on which side of the pond you come from, uh, with his fantastic moustache here, uh, once famously asked this question. Why should you pay attention to the truth? Pontius Pilate springs to mind a little bit here, but this is sort of even more radical than that. Why should you pay attention to the truth? This brings up a fascinating issue of the relationship between morality and rationality. We can, we can think in terms of moral obligations, but can you have uh, obligations to be rational? And we often, in everyday conversation, would say things to people like, oh, come on, be reasonable. As if people have some sort of obligation to think correctly or to give due care and attention to thinking about certain things. Uh, that morality and rationality actually are intertwined with one another. A moral subjectivist would contradict themselves were they to claim that people objectively ought to believe the conclusion of any argument for moral subjectivism. If you say, no, you didn't, you didn't ought to believe that there are any objective moral oughts. And here's an argument that if you are reasonable enough to, and you pay respectful attention to, and you think about it, you'll see that you ought to agree with me that there's no such thing as an ought. Hang on a minute. Something's gone wrong there, hasn't it? Um, so... This goes back to Nielsen's point. Uh, actually, I think you could argue that there can't be any sufficient counter-evidence or argument to the belief that there are objective moral values because the very process of trying to argue for that would kind of assume it. Uh, 
So we have the moral argument, if God doesn't exist, objective moral values don't exist, objective moral values exist, therefore God exists. I prefer the, 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 the positive way of putting it, of saying um, that the, if there were objective moral values, there'd have to be a God. The only way in which you can coherently make sense of the existence of such a thing is a God, but there is such a thing, there are objective moral values, therefore there is a God, because then the crucial premise is, is obviously this, um, not only once you've given the, the existence of these moral values, but why should I think that they depend upon God? Why make that linkage? And I think there are a number of good arguments for that, in, including pointing out the fact that when you think about the, what, what kind of thing an objective moral value or obligation or duty is, that it's objective... So it doesn't depend upon me or you, us or humanity. It transcends us. Uh, as Lando was saying, that these, there are standards out there that don't depend on us. But what kind of thing is a moral obligation or standard? It's an ideal, which you might argue would therefore have to exist in some kind of a mind or person rather than an, an impersonal or merely abstract kind of object. I'm, I'm objectively obligated to do the right thing. That's an ob- obligation that can't be trumped. But surely I can only be obligated to a personal reality. I can't be obligated to this chair. But I can be obligated to persons, like Bjorn. But if this obligation is something that transcends us... There must be a transcendent person to whom I am obligated in a way that can't be trumped. And so that person must have the moral authority to be obeyed. And again, that's not just in terms of might makes right. The argument isn't, you know, if there weren't a god going around as a kind of policeman in, a, in, in the sky with a truncheon, you know, looking over your shoulder, making sure that you know that if you do the wrong thing, you're going to get punished, then you wouldn't do the right thing, which is, again, a sort of new atheist car- caricature of the argument. Um, it's not that, but it's about the, about the right to be obeyed, the objective right to, be, to, to obligate my behaviour. Absolutely, but that only makes sense in the context of a relationship to a personal reality. And again, in morals, we feel this incumbency of of commands, of prescriptions. They're not just descriptions of the way things are, what, the way I do behave. They're prescriptions about the way I should behave, but might fail to. But again, a prescription or a command only makes sense conceptually in the context of talking about someone who can command, a commander, a prescriber, who stands behind the prescription. So when you start thinking about what what kind of thing are we meeting in moral experience, we're meeting something that only makes sense when we conceive of it being grounded in something that's personal and that has moral authority in terms of, of, of the, the right to prescribe and obligate our behaviour. But a personal reality that's wholly good, therefore, but which transcends us in order to make sense of the objectivity of the morality. 
So because it's, it's objective, it must transcend us. Because it's morality that obligates, prescribes, etc., it must be personal. So an objectively existing, transcendent, personal, holy good reality. Okay, it's quite a big slice of what we mean by God. There we go. That's the, the moral argument. Let's have some Q&A about that. Yes. Um, I can't quite follow you why you would say that it follows that it must be a person to whom I'm obligated, like, for example, the Eastern religions of Buddhism, etc., would still have moral oughts. Um, yeah. But it, it's not to a person. Rather, they say, because reality is this way, because I am you and you are me, or whatever mm. it is, um, karma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the ought is grounded on the fact that it's it's better for me. That's why it's self-centered. Um, but it still is an ought. They would still they would still mm. say there's an ought, even though there isn't a person to whom they're mm. accountable. Okay, so can you explain the the oughtness of morality <coughs> in terms of a non-personal? Grounding, as in, say, a pantheistic uh, context, is, is the question. Uh, I think not. I think conceptually, the kind of ought that we're talking about in morality implies an obligation to a, someone to whom you are obligated, a personal reality. And that just conceptually, obligations don't make sense in terms of impersonal realities. That chair can't obligate me, it can't obligate the other chair. There's no obligation as a relationship between these two impersonal objects. And within a pantheistic worldview, all is one, and all is impersonal. So there is no personal obligation. What I think you're really talking about in that context, as you said about the sort of self-centred sort of wheel of karma and so on, is a pragmatic ought rather than a moral ought. The kind of ought that, that would be, you know, if you want to um, take the quickest route home, you ought to look up your journey on Google Maps or something, because they've got the most accurate information about journey times or some claim like this. And that's not a, that, that ought there is not a moral ought, it's a pragmatic ought that's predicated, dependent upon this if. Um, but morality is not predicated upon an if. It's predicated upon you should. Not a if you feel like it or if you want to achieve this, but you should achieve this. Um, and so you can't ground talking about morality and transla- or translate that into pragmatic descriptions or things that are merely descriptive of an impersonal reality. Um, I think that's what I would say on that. Yeah? Um, what would you say if, like I've heard people say, like, uh, I believe in objective moral truths, but so like, I, I can see that in nature, by just by analyzing the best products, it's kind of more like a special credits, like just analyze what you have here, mm. the individual things. Um, what would you say, like, they, I believe in moral objective truths, but it does, does not imply that God exists? What would you answer to someone? Okay, so what would I say to someone who says, I believe in, in objective moral truths? I can just, that's kind of obvious. Um, but why should I think that that makes any implication about the existence of a God? 
well, it would come down again to this analysis of, well, what, what kind of thing are these moral truths that we're meeting in our experience? And this is one of the really nice things about the moral argument, I think, is that it connects with everybody's day-to-day experience. Um, it's not an abstract intellectual argument like the ontological argument, or even like some of the other arguments where you have to say, I'm going to do a design argument. Let me first of all teach you about cell biology <laughs> at a university level. Now I can mount my argument. It's like, this is something everybody knows from day-to-day experience. We, we have these moral experiences of incumbency and, and failure and guilt and so on. But when you analyse what kind of thing are these objective moral values, you see that you, have, you, you, you can only conceptually make sense of them with respect to a personal explanation, uh, but you can also only make sense of them because of their objectivity, their independence from us as persons, to a, a transcendent objective reality. So you get a transcendent objective personal reality that by nature can prescribe and obligate rightfully prescribe and obligate our behaviour and that is just obviously quite a lot of big slice of what you mean by God um, yeah but, uh, but, but I do think it's, it's a, the question of, of laws in, in very many cultures well we think in the categories of laws Comic thinking is, is bringing art into how existence works, like the wisdom thinking as well. Uh, so, so um, if you want to live a happy life, there are certain ways of acting and not acting that belong to that. And I think human beings are able to understand some of them. But the question yeah. here is, how do you ground that? Yeah. Uh, of course, you could say, yeah. if you do bad things, well, the karma will make sure you you pay next life. That's not a grounding of, of making it good. It's just saying that, well, you will pay. Mm. Mm. That, there's a difference, yeah. uh, right. philosophically. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to move on swiftly, but I think we'll have a lot, last question from, from Ian. Yeah. Do you want a question? Yes, please. Yeah, I was just wondering if, if the moral argument is, is an argument rather than compelling logic. In other words, it's pointing towards possibility of there being an objective reality called God mm-hmm. from whom we derive moral values and the alternative being that people just agree mm. that's the atheist point of view you know. Um, the worst way of stating it um, was on our film the other night Peter Atkinson, we stumbled into ways of yeah. living that suit our species yeah. so it's, it's yeah. something that we've agreed yeah. but they're not necessarily out there it's yeah. like we've agreed to go for lunch at 12. Yeah. So, so that morality for, for that kind of atheist is just a social convention, an agreement, which is really a denial of the existence of objective moral values. And to such an atheist, I would want to put them into a conversation with the kind of atheist who says, no, there really are objective moral values, and there are good arguments for that, and there are no good arguments for thinking that they're merely subjective things. However it is that we've stumbled into a knowledge of them or come to feel that torturing small children for fun is, is wrong or whatever, you can say, well, the explanation for why I have that feeling is my evolutionary history. But it's a completely separate question to say, when I have that feeling, am I feeling the way that I ought to? Uh, uh, it, does that feeling correctly describe 
an objectively existing moral obligation. So again, the moral argument is not about how do we come to know right and wrong without God. Maybe there's all sorts of ways you could do that that's compatible with the argument. The question is, given that there is an an objective right and wrong, and plenty of atheists will argue that there is, plenty of atheists would reject the, the conventional Explanation that kind of Peter Atkins explanations of morality. The question is, how do you con- what worldview is most consistent with the existence of such a thing as an objective moral command, an obligation? Well, I, I think we're going to have to move on for time, but there you can come and ask me. There. <laughs> I think there's another side to this which is very appealing. And if you're being wronged, mm. then this gives you hope. Because if there's not, then if there are no moral values and absolutes, you have no hope. You, you'll be yeah. wrong. So what? Yeah. As Richard Dawkins says, um, I think he's in River Out of Eden, you know, um, he says reality is just as we would expect if there's no design or purpose, no good or evil, just pitiless, blind indifference. You know, we're here, we just happen to be here, and the, the, the wheels of the naturalistic machine grind on, and so, of course, some people are going to get crushed. But hey, that's just the way things are. Um, but you can't coherently object, that shouldn't happen, that's wrong. You, know. <laughs> you, shouldn't do that you, you shouldn't do that to me. It's like, well, I am doing that to you. <laughs> you know. um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, the teleological, the design argument, um, there's a big flourishing debate in this area at the moment. Um, particularly uh, with the, the whole sort of intelligent design movement, which tends to, um, at least in the media eye, the discussion tends to focus on the sort of the, the biological evolution versus design kind of kind of arguments. Um, and although Craig's done uh, some um, putting toes in the water, as it were, in that kind of area, uh, and and says that there are, he's got some some scepticism about the. the the, the complete explanatory adequacy of the current neo-Darwinian theory, that's not where he would put an emphasis. Um, and in his debates, he, he says, you know, I do an end run around this, this issue by talking about the design <coughs> argument from the fine-tuning of the whole universe, from the preconditions of there being life, whether or not that life can evolve within that context of these, these preconditions for life that are provided by the general structure of the cosmos as a whole. Um, because, you know, whatever you may do of the debate about evolution and Darwinism and so on, if you've got a good argument for thinking that the whole context within that happens has a design and a purpose, <laughs> Uh, then you are at least establishing the, the doctrine of creation, as it were, and you can then leave aside as a secondary matter, sort of in-house debate, you know, discussions about which particular model of creation, as it were, you might prefer. But the, the crucial thing is to, is to move people from thinking there's no creator to thinking there's a creator. <laughs> um, more in-house discussions about you know, how much particular stuff that creator may or may not have done within the historical process is very much a secondary uh, issue, Craig points out, and I think that's a, a, a sound point. So we would have here an argument from cosmic fine-tuning 
um, the, the just right nature of the universe, as Paul Davis famously put it, uh, anal- analogizing the universe to Goldilocks and the Three Bears, where you have the story of Goldilocks goes into the Three Bears' house and they've left their porridge on the table, and one is, ooh, far too hot to eat. And she tries another, you know, Mama Bear's porridge, and, oh, it's too cold, oh, terrible. But Baby Bear's porridge is, mmm, just right. And Paul Davis says, our universe is just right for life. But unlike the Goldilocks and the Three Bears example, it's not that you have a, you know, one out of three is just right. So the chances of Goldilocks coming across the right, you know, the edible meal first time is one in three. Rather, the chances of our universe being just right are um, beyond astronomical, literally, in the sense that (coughs) even some of the individual numbers calculated for the particular force of certain physical forces in the universe that are necessary preconditions for there being anything complex in it, like matter, let alone chemistry, let alone organic chemistry, let alone complex life, uh, are numbers that are so big that you literally couldn't write those numbers down, even if you used every fundamental particle in the universe as a repository of each digit that you would need to write down to write the number out. (laughs) These are huge numbers, and then you point out that there are multiple of such conditions that you have to multiply together. The the, the numbers are just incomprehensible. a little bit more comprehensible is, is the analogy of the universe-making machine. They say we have a kind of dial on this machine for every law or constant of nature that we want to give our, our possible universe. And if we tuned a machine to represent our universe so that we had a, a law, a dial for every law of nature and constant that we actually have, and they're all tuned to the strength weaknesses relative to each other that they actually have, we took just one of them, say gravity, change it by a very small percentage, press the create universe button, the the astonishing thing that sort of shook the scientific community when we started discovering this in, say, the 1970s and onwards, is that the product of doing that kind of thing would be a sterile, lifeless universe. would be maybe a universe that didn't even last long enough for you to get matter coalescing out of the, the early energy of the universe. Um, or that wouldn't have carbon or oxygen in it, um, that had no possibility of organic chemistry happening, and so on. That actually the the set of possible universes that are consistent with the existence of of complexity and, and life in particular is a minute subset of the set of possible physically self consistent universes. And many of the people who discovered that fact sort of remarked, that's a bit kind of look, makes the universe look like a put-up job, um, as it were. Uh, that raises our suspicions. Paul Davis, his book The Goldilocks Enigma, um, he says everyone agrees that the universe looks as if it were designed for life. The discussion really is about whether or not that appearance is misleading or not. What the, what the most plausible interpretation of this fine-tuning observation, uh, this anthropic observation, is. Uh, Professor Fred Hoyle, who was an atheist, who dis- was one of the first people to discover one of these instances of fine-tuning, 
um, about the, the resonance within stars needed to produce carbon when they explode so that we have carbon in the universe for organic chemistry to happen. Um, and, and he found that the, the preconditions in the, in the sort of chemistry within stars for this to be possible was balanced on a knife edge. And he said a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect is monkeyed with physics. Uh, he's an atheist. You know, he, he didn't want to call it God, um, but he was at least prepared to go that far. Well, one way, very intuitive way of putting this argument would basically to be say, look, if it looks like it's designed, hey, maybe it is. Maybe that throws the burden of proof on the sceptic. And you could kind of bring in a little bit more sophistication by appealing, say, to uh, Richard Swinburne, British philosopher at Oxford Uni, and his principle of knowledge called the principle of credulity, when to trust stuff, that basically says um, we ought to believe that things are, pragmatically, we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be, until we have evidence that we're mistaken. And he says, look, it's obviously a sensible epistemological, how we know stuff, rule to follow, because if you flipped it and you said, I'm never going to believe that things are the way they seem to be until I've got enough evidence to convince me that that is the way that things are. Because then you'd look at the evidence for taking things to be the way they seem to be seriously, and you'd say, but I shouldn't take that evidence seriously as real evidence that really does support things being that way until I've got some evidence that proves that that really is the way that things seem to be. And I shouldn't take that evidence for that seriously until I've got some evidence. But how do I know that's really evidence? It looks like evidence, but I shouldn't trust that things are the way they seem to be until I've got enough evidence to prove that they are. <laughs> and you end up being sceptical about everything, basically. Um, so he says, actually, the rational thing to do is to say, um, if it looks like a duck and it's waddling like a duck and pecking at bread like a duck and so good chance that it's a duck. And if your conspiracy theory is that it looks like a duck but actually it's not, you bear the burden of proof of proving to me that it's some sort of animatronic duck off a film set that someone's in a bush with a radio control set piloting or whatever. Um, but until you do that, I'm going to assume that that's a duck because it sure as heck looks like one. Okay. So given that kind of grounding, you could just argue like this. You could say uh, we should take things to be the way they seem to be until given sufficient reason for doubt. Uh, the fine-tuning of the cosmos seems like the product of design, as even agnostic and atheist scientists regularly admit. Therefore, we should take the fine-tuning of the cosmos to be the product of design until and unless we're given sufficient reason to doubt that conclusion. Over to you, sceptic. That's at least a, an interesting conversation starter, you know. Um, you can bring even more rigour to the argument um, by um, starting to appeal to actually some of the concepts within intelligent design theory apply here as well. Bill Craig terms the argument this way, uh, as a sort of um, uh, elimination of possible alternative explanations. It says there's only a limited set of possible ways of explaining this fine-tuning observation, and if we can rule all of them out until we've got only one left, then that's the one we'll have to accept. So it says the fine-tuning of the universe is due is explicable in terms of either physical necessity or chance we got lucky 
or design. Premise two, it, it's not due to physical necessity or chance. Conclusion, therefore it's due to design. And again, I think you can see you know, that's a logically valid argument. And then he appeals himself to the work of the intelligent design theorist Bill Dembski, who's codified what I think is just a sort of bit of common sense, really, but um, you know, it, it can be revolutionary sometimes to sort of rigorously codify common sense. Uh, if you uh, read the work of ID theorists like Dembski, you'll find that, that none of them appeals to the simple high improbability of an event or thing as a basis for a design inference. Design inferences do not go, well, look, something really unlikely happened. Therefore, it must have happened on purpose. That's not how the argument goes. So Dembski argues that in addition, in addition to high improbability, there also needs to be conformity to an independently given or knowable pattern. When these two elements are present, we have what Dembski calls specified complexity or specified unlikelihood, which is the tip-off to intelligent design. And he gives this lovely example. He says, for example, in a poker game, any deal of the cards is equally and highly improbable. One possible arrangement of cards out of all of the possible arrangements of cards that you could deal. But if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, which is an independently knowable pattern by the rules of poker, you can bet that this is not the result of chance but of design. And it sometimes uses this analogy. He says, you know, in Dodge City, there's the cowboys around the table in the saloon. <laughs> and this guy dealing the cards, every time it comes to be his deal, he ends up with all four aces. And the cowboy at the table stands up, pulls out his six-year and says, you're a cheating varmint. You know, show us what's up your sleeve or I'm going to fill you with lead. And the other cowboy says to him, I don't know what you're getting all so, so, so hot under the collar about. Look, any deal of cards that I make is equally as improbable as any other. <laughs> well, that reply is not going to satisfy <laughs> the cowboy with the, the, with the drawn gun, is it? And neither, neither should it. So we can argue in this general form, things exhibiting specified complexity are probably designed released. The fine-tuning of the Big Bang exhibits specified complexity. So the fine-tuning of the Big Bang was probably designed. Let me give you another day-to-day um, -day kind of example. Um, the English game of, of Scrabble, where you take these letters out of a bag, sight unseen, and then you try and form words on the board for different scores. Supposing you're drawing out these Scrabble letters and you, you take out this sequence of letters okay. um, it's very long and therefore very complex very unlikely that's, that's one very particular sequence of letters out of all of the possible particular sequences of letters that you could arrange them into so it's unlikely but it's not specified and although this could be the product of design you can get away without appealing to design very easily. Just from looking at that, you've got insufficient reason to say, well, that must be designed. 
Now, maybe I did deliberately put each letter there rather than doing it sight unseen. But just from looking at it, you, can't, you couldn't tell that. You've got no reason to infer design. But suppose you take out the letters D-O-G, and you go, oh, ha, I spelled a word. Okay? Dog. It's specified as, as an event. You haven't just read a pattern off what happened and said, good grief, look at what happened. You've said, oh, I know about that pattern. Look, look, it's been matched. But it's not complex. That's not very unlikely that that would happen occasionally when you're playing Scrabble. You do occasionally pull out little words that make sense. And you kind of go, oh, well, that's not particularly unlikely. But supposing you're playing Scrabble and you, I say, you know, take the letters out of the bag, keep going, keep going, keep going, and that happens. <coughs> you draw out the letters that spell this sentence. <coughs> From Plato's The Laws, book 10, all things do become, have become, will become, some by nature, some by art, design, and some by chance. Well, which do you think is the best explanation for that event? Chance? Or by nature, was there some sort of physical law that produced that, some sort of regularity, some sort of necessity that produced that? Or is it the product of design? Have I pulled some sort of magic trick on you to cause that to happen? You know intuitively which the, what the, the right answer is, don't you? In our experience, indeed, whenever we see something that has specified complexity and we know where it came from, it came from a mind. Uh, so just by a standard inferential argument, you can say in, in instances where we see specified complexity, even when we don't already know where it came from, we're justified in inferring that the most probable explanation is that it came from a designing mind somehow. Because this is both complex and specified. It's clearly the product of, of design. Or, or think about ma- mountains, Here's a, a mountain in America. It has um, a very unlikely pattern shaping of rock on it. Um, as you can see, this is probably the only uh, rock in the world that's weathered in that particular way um, at the back there. Also, this is probably the only rock in the world that's weathered in that particular way. They're both very unlikely. But there does seem to be a difference between the front of the mountain and the back. <laughs> The front of the mountain is not just complex, it's also specified. (coughs) Uh, And it's that that makes us go, ah, design. Even if you were the first man to land on Mars, and you go to the famous so-called face on Mars, and you go, good grief, NASA, we're wrong. That actually is the weathered remains of a giant sculpture of a head, like something from ancient Egypt. You don't know who made it, you don't know how they made it. You know, people didn't make it from Earth, because we've never been there before. Um, But you would, of course, not go, oh, look what fantastic geology happens on Mars. (laughs) You would go, good grief, there are other intelligent beings in the universe somewhere. You know, you would infer design. You might then enter into all sorts of interesting debates about the other qualities or nature of that designer. You know, how intelligent were these designers? What's with their moral character and so on? Um, But whatever the result of those debates, it's all going to be predicated on the idea that design is going to be the explanation here. 
Books have authors, musical schools have composers, portraits have author, artists. By the way, sometimes neo-atheists will do, they say, look, you can't explain something in terms of something that's even more complex, because that's no explanation. You've just made explaining things worse. Well, hang on a minute. All I need to do is show you uh, a, paint, uh, a self-portrait by, I don't know, Rembrandt or Jean Vermeer or someone, and say, look, is the best explanation of this portrait design? Yes, it is. Which is more complex, this portrait or the artist? Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and indeed, as Craig was pointing out, in order for something to be the best explanation of something else... You don't need to have an explanation of the explanation. Otherwise, that rule would actually generate an infinite regress of explanations and you'd never be able to explain anything. So that kind of objection to the design argument is an objection to science as a whole. It's an anti-scientific objection, which is nice to point out. And, of course, that objection is begging the question against the possibility that the intelligence in question might be one that is an undesigned intelligence it's begging the question against the possibility of God existing, which is a naughty thing to do in a discussion about whether or not there's a God begging the question. You know. um, so that's a quick reply. Um, the most plausible design candidate, particularly for fine-tuning of the whole universe, would be some kind of non-physical, undesigned intelligence with power over the universe which, again, is a slice of what we traditionally mean by God. Um, You might, for example, say, oh, maybe that design, particularly in biology, it might be plausible to say, well, maybe aliens for Alpha Centauri did it. Well, okay, well, maybe they did, but where did the aliens come from? Do they contain no specified complexity? Do they not themselves depend upon the preconditions of life exhibited in the fine-tuning of the universe as a whole, and how do you explain that? That's why this fine-tuning of the universe is a more fundamental issue than the issue about design in the realm of biology or not. Now, I'll show you a little clip. I was recently privileged to be able to debate um, the new atheist philosopher from Oxford, A.C. Grayling, Uh, on Premier Christian Radio in the UK and they stuck a video camera in the room without telling me so I didn't bring my suit which lowered my ethos in rhetorical terms but I think I had the better of the argument so here's a little clip of us discussing the fine-tuning argument so here you see here I am using that argument um, uh, in earnest as it were and let's see how uh, an atheist philosopher from Oxford University um, deals with it and uh, what you think of that little interchange Rather like the fact that my great-great-great-grandparents 
caught that particular train and, and went into that particular cafe and encountered one another in that particular way. I don't, however egomaniacal I might be, however vain, think that my great 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 grandparents were doing that on purpose to be sure that I, some centuries later, would be born. But the thing about the fine tuning of the universe is that, that that complexity, that unlikeliness of the tuning is specified, it's a specified complexity. And that means that, that we, we can know about those those conditions being a prerequisite of, of any life at all, um, independently of what the, the results happen to have been, historically speaking. We can only say, you know, historically, that certain people meeting at certain times and certain cafes on led to this particular result. We know that historically, but absent of knowing actually about you in your life, um, we wouldn't be able to independently of that knowledge specify the condition of what what those events uh, could lead to or not lead to or may lead to someone else uh, a comparable uh, objectively comparable sort of outcome maybe not this particular person but some other person or, or whatever i think my, my great great grandparent analogy is introduces much much more um, variability much greater set of chances in fact many many more parameters than the atm machine you, you can actually do, if there's an algorithm you could imply here about how, how many times you punch before you get the right combination of four, it's pretty large. But uh, I think the number... I suppose, I suppose the point is that it was kind of inevitable in the history of life that people would meet and have children, and you happen to be the end result of that process. But it doesn't involve any design in that sense. Whereas it's hard to see how that is analogous to the universe in as much as the universe um, didn't ha had these very specific initially existing constants at its birth, and and I, I'm, I'm kind of tr having trouble seeing how that sort of initial set of conditions is analogous to the chance meetings of people down the ages that produce someone. Because well, but I can specify. You see, I, I can say now I exist. And I couldn't have existed unless, and then I can specify a list of conditions that would have to be met. And among them would be uh, my great-great-grandparents would have to have done things just so in order for it to be the case that my great-grandparents and then my grandparents and my parents and then finally I came into existence. Well, I, I think we're going to have to, at this stage, agree to differ over whose, whose analogy is, is the, the correct uh, analogy, which analysis of the, those conditions uh, is correct, and whether or not we're sort of um, projecting ourselves retrograde aggressively back uh, upon them or not, uh, I don't um, think we are. I think it's this, this key thing about the, the specified nature of that complexity at the beginning being knowable independently of what particular um, history or results uh, has come from it. I think what Grayling does there in his attempt to substitute a different analogy is a bit like um, Bill Dembski uses this in a, an, an image of uh, and the archer who, uh, you know, an arrow is let slip from the bow and it hits the wall. And then the archer walks up to the wall with a paint pot and draws a target around it. And then says, hey, look what a fantastic archer I am. <laughs> you can infer that uh, that, uh, that happened by design. Um, it's only having known what happened that he then picked out the target rather than picking out the, t the target independently of what actually happened. It's like taking out the, that long sequence of Scrabble letters that we had the first slide and saying, 
Good grief, you know, what are the, that's very unlikely. And look, in order for me to, to have this uh, letter U um, here in this particular sequence of letters, I would have had to have picked out all of those previous letters in just the right order for that to happen. Therefore, it must have happened by design. <laughs> um, well, no, because you, 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 that, that's not hitting an independently specified target. Whereas when you put out the the one from Plato's Laws, if you didn't know Plato's Laws, you know, good grief, that's a long sequence of letters that hits the target requirement for grammatical sense within a, a particular language. Ian? I think that A.C. Grayling's um, metaphor is incredibly naive. I mean, he's, he's, he's comparing the functioning of the universe to his ancestors mm. producing him somehow. Yeah. But his ancestors were biologically fine-tuned for procreation. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that maybe he's starting too far down the line. It's an absurd argument, it seems to me. I mean, the question is, how does he explain the fact that his ancestors have got this amazing ability to come together yeah. biologically and produce new life? Yeah. For gra- for, for, what Groening is really saying is, we were just lucky. He's picking the chance option and saying, look, it's just that we were lucky, and you can't, you can't say, oh, because I was lucky, therefore it must have happened on purpose. He thinks that the design argument is saying, look, something unlikely happened, therefore it was designed. But as I started at the point, uh, from the get-go, that's not the structure of the design argument. So he, he's just attacking what we call attacking a straw man. Um, a, a weak maybe deliberately, maybe non-deliberately, but a weak representation of the, of the position that's actually being defended that doesn't really represent it. Yeah. I'd like to know if you, if you could make some comment on what I understand the argument of the multiverse. That they uh, I will, yes, okay. Um, so, uh, an often standard reply, as our, our friend points out, is people then ap- appeal to multiverses and say, well, maybe there are a lot of different universes all with slightly different laws of nature. Um, so it was like giving ourselves a lot of different rolls of the dice, as it were, so that it, it, it wouldn't actually be unlikely that, we, that one of these attempts, one of these products, one of these universes would happen by chance to hit the specification because we, we're giving ourselves lots of opportunities to hit the specification. So, so it, the apparent specified complexity... It would be specified, but you would say, but actually, you're wrong to think that it's complex enough to trigger a design inference. It's more like drawing out the word dog than drawing out that sentence from Plato's Laws. It's not complex enough because, actually, there are all these other goes of the dice happening, as it were. Well, this is Paul Davis, as you know, agnostic physicist. He says this, multiverse theories merely shift the problem up a level from the universe to the multiverse. To appreciate this, one only has to list the many assumptions that underpin a multiverse theory. There has to be a universe-generating mechanism um, within any scientific multiverse theory. There has to be some sort of scientifically describable mechanism that is producing different universes that answers questions like, well, why is it that all these different universes that are being produced are different to one another? Why isn't it that there are a million identical lifeless universes? 
and more being produced all the time? Why, are they, why is there a range of different universes such that eventually one of them would hit the specification for life? You can't just take that assumption for granted, as it were. You can't just give yourself that uh, for free. Um, there has to be a gen- universe-generating mechanism, and he goes on to some um, physical details of that that needn't detain us. But that raises the obvious question of the source of, say, the quantum laws that permit this process of, of, uh, of inflation of different um, universes being generated within inflationary cosmology and so on. Furthermore, if we accept that the multiverse is uh, predicted by, say, string theory, M theory, string theory, uh, then that theory with its specific mathematical form also has to be accepted as given. Um, but the multiverse theory can't provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe is fit for life or, to come on to the last argument we'll look at cosmologically, why there should even be any universes of any particular form in the first place anyway. When we're making a cumulative case in the context of saying, well, actually, you don't just need an explanation of why the universe has the particular form that it does. You also need to have the best explanation of why there should even be a universe and the best explanation of why that universe should contain objective moral values, and so on and so on and so on. <laughs> um, so when you take the, the kind of weight of evidence as a whole, um, that's really the, the important thing. But it's kind of, kind of having the ruckle in the carpet, you might be able to flatten this bit out, but then it pops up over here. You've just kicked it up a, a level, as it were. Um, if there was some sort of mechanism that produced lots of different universes, it itself would exhibit some specified complexity in all likelihood. So that would be one uh, move and counter reply to this whole multiverse thing. Yes, yes, sir. Tim Keller in his book uh, then also applied the poker analogy to the multiverse and said, the cowboy says, no, 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 you don't understand. There, there's a multiverse. It yeah. just happened to be in the one where I get four aces every time. Yeah, yeah. There's a, lot, there's a heck of a lot of games of poker going on, yeah. you know. Um, And isn't it a bit ad hoc? Even if you granted that, okay, given that there were enough games of poker going on, maybe this this apparently complex result actually isn't complex. But how do I just grant you that there just happened conveniently for your objection to be enough games of poker or enough universes to swamp the huge improbabilities of the fine-tuning of this particular universe. Sometimes I use that whole sh- monkey Shakespeare thing, you know. If there were enough monkeys typing at enough typewriters for long enough, then by chance they would produce the works of William Shakespeare. Even granting that premise, if you hold up a work, the collected works of William Shakespeare, and say, there you go, look, proof positive that there are lots and lots of monkeys with typewriters. <laughs> I'm saying, now hang on a minute, I think the better explanation here is the one author explanation rather than the many monkeys explanation in the absence of any evidence that there actually are enough monkeys somewhere with enough typewriters who have been typing away for long enough. You can't just say, if there were enough multiple universes, then your argument wouldn't work. What you really need to say is, it's more plausible than not to think that there are enough universes. And maybe you have the burden of proof of showing that. You can't just put up a mere possibility, you know. Um, 
it sure seems to me like I'm actually in this room with a lot of other people this morning. I mean, maybe I'm in the matrix and I'm alone in the world. I'm the last surviving human being and the evil computer overlords are fooling me into thinking I'm in this world and living this life. Well, maybe, but I don't take that thought seriously in the absence of someone actually giving me enough evidence to think that that is the case. If I just throw out possibilities as if they're substantial responses to evidentially motivated arguments. I think this is the strongest argument by far. Mm. And I've tested that out in my experience of interviewing some of the experienced mm. and many of the work They do not have an answer for this. Even the skeptic, Michael Shermer, admits that this is the best argument there is for mm. the existence of God. Um, others say perhaps like Steven Weinberg, the great physicist perhaps there's some fundamental principle that we haven't discovered yet so it's all just groping in the dark mm. to get any reasonable answer to this which mm. does not suggest design mm. Mm. they just don't have an answer and I, and I think that it's very important that Christians know that and, and communicate this point in their own discussions as widely as possible in Morris, just for the tape, just pointing out from his experience of, of interviewing atheists for the documentaries that he's made, he says this, this is an argument, the fine-tuning one, where, where he finds atheists are just kind of groping in the dark to find a, a reply that they, they sort of self-admittedly say, we don't have a good response to this one at the moment. Yeah. Um, in dealing less with atheist philosophers and scientists, but more people on the street and their mm. I found the moral argument has been extremely effective because yeah. it's so deeply ingrained in Romans one yeah. that as I, I was I was talking about a movie called Collateral with Tom mm-hmm. Cruise and Jamie Foxx where Tom Cruise is a contract killer and at some point Jamie Foxx is asking mm-hmm. why are you mm-hmm. killing all these people because Tom Cruise is forcing him to drive them around killing these people yeah. And Tom Cruise gives this rationale. <coughs> well, it's the universe, and it's everything's indifferent, and he just gives this ration, atheist rationale for mm. why it's fully okay for him to go around shooting individuals because no one cares. No one cared mm. about the million African children that died. Yeah. And Jamie Foxx doesn't have a response, mm. and it's beautiful mm. because he mm. says, "Well, something's just wrong with you." And he yeah. doesn't. So I got into a conversation with my friends about that. Yeah. And one of my friends, I said, "So what about the Holocaust?" Mm. He said, "Well, it's wrong because." The countries around us decided it was wrong. And I said, so what if Germany had won the war? Would Holocaust have been okay then? Yeah. And he said, yeah, I guess so. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. said, okay, well, we're done with this conversation. Maybe we'll be talking about <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah. Are you really prepared to pay that price tag of denying moral objectivity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and for the tape again, this, this, uh, the moral argument, I, I think, does connect with people at, at the lay level very well because of it. it's in every day's day-to-day experience and can, can be so powerfully illustrated with things like, like clips from film and everyday experiences that you bring out these intuitions in people that are, that are very strong, that's, you know, the cry of the human heart for justice, uh, and so on is a powerful um, indicator of the truth of one of the two crucial premises of that argument. And are you really going to bite the bullet and say that you know, the Holocaust was just you know it was just I don't like it, not they were wrong, they shouldn't have done it. Yeah. 
two versions of the cosmological argument, just to... Yeah. Yes? We turn to the resurrection quite quickly. And yes. So, yeah, very good. Okay, yeah. Um, yes, okay. Um, I'm going to have to whip through this. Uh, Leibnizian form on the principle of sufficient reason, you just make this, this claim about explanation, that everything that exists has an explanation of the fact that it exists, but that that explanation would be either in the, the necessity of its own nature, the concept we came across in the ontological argument, or in it having some kind of an external cause. If it exists, there's an explanation, either that's something outside of itself, or it's not something outside of itself, but it's just in the kind of thing that it is. Um, you just say that that just seems to be in, an intuitively plausible metaphysical principle that you would assume in everyday life. Um, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, we're not saying at this stage that it does, but if it did, that explanation is plausibly God. Actually, atheists, when they say, um, well, there isn't any God, um, so the universe doesn't have an explanation of its existence, are, are kind of just flipping that around, um, such that they would sort of admit that, well, okay, if there were an explanation, it's plausible to say, well, that's, that's some kind of a god, isn't it? That's what we kind of mean. Um, it's pretty obvious that the universe does exist. That's pretty hard to deny. <laughs> so it would follow from premise one and three, if those are both true, it follows that not only does the universe exist, but it has an explanation of its existence. And from premise two and premise four, it logically follows that the explanation of the universe's existence is something like God. Um, so there's only a very narrow opportunity for, for, for denying things as sort of escape clauses from this argument. You could, you could try and deny this causal premise at the beginning here. You could try and deny that the universe exists. Seems to be a pretty high price tag. Um, you could deny that if there is an explanation of the universe's existing, that would be anything remotely approaching the concept of God, you'd have to say, well, that would be something that's, so, that's less like the concept of God than like the concept of God, and which is compatible with me being an atheist. Again, that seems pretty difficult to do, um, and it seems pretty logically airtight as an argument. The usual response you'll get, in, you'll get is, that, well, who, what explains God then? You know, if the universe has to have an explanation, God has to have an explanation. Aha, I've got you. No, you don't. God does have an explanation in the necessity of his own being. Oh, well, then why can't I say the same thing about the universe? That the universe has an explanation, but it's in the necessity of its own being, rather than in something outside of itself. <coughs> you, you're really saying that the universe exists necessarily? This, this physical object with a finite past and so on exists necessarily you're saying it's not the product of a, of a, of a multiverse theory because when you appeal to multiverse theory to get out of the fine tuning argument you seem to be saying that universes were the kind of thing that, that could be created that could not exist until they're produced so that they're contingent that was the way you escaped my fine tuning argument by appealing to multiple universes but, but now you seem to be going back on that so aren't you caught between the fine tuning argument 
and this kind of cosmological argument. <laughs> you, you can't escape both of them. <laughs> Which, <you know. laughs> so that's a, I think that's an interesting move there. Um, fascinating quote from the recent New Scientist uh, uh, magazine uh, editorial about the Big Bang being now standard part of, of cosmology. A cosmologist had tried on seven different models of the universe to dodge the need for a beginning while still admitting a Big Bang, because that seems to point to a creator. But recent research has shot these dodges full of holes. It now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Without an escape clause, we must finally answer the problem, how do you get a universe, complete with the laws of physics, out of nothing? Well, that is the problem you face if you won't, if you won't appeal to a god uh, to explain it. Um, Craig puts the argument uh, this way, for example. He says, uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. There are some nice philosophical arguments for this, but you can now appeal to Big Bang cosmology to support the same thing, from which it would follow that, therefore, the universe has a cause, and then you unpack the nature of that cause to, again, get some of the qualities of God. Um, I, I think there might actually be a bit of an equivocation uh, problem in that way of putting the argument. When you say something began to exist, you might mean it, it came into existence, i.e. there was a set of existing things, and then at, at a certain time, X joined in with the set of existing things, so that it enlarged the set of existing things, as it were. That's one way of understanding what you mean by saying X began to exist. Or you could simply mean X has a finite past rather than an infinite past history. Uh, and you want to make sure in this kind of argument, of course, that your terminology is being used consistently. So you could translate it kind of two different ways. If you said this, whatever, uh, whatever comes into existence has a cause... The universe came into, joined the set of existing things, therefore the universe has a cause. Now the problem with that is, well A, for example, Big Bang cosmology doesn't support the first premise. It doesn't support the premise that there, there was a set of existing things and then the universe joined it. That's not what's been supported. So you haven't supported the first premise of that argument, even if it's true. But also, you might think that, that assuming that there's a set of existing things absent the universe joining into that set at some, at some time, might actually be, you might be assuming that there's a god who forms that set of existing things, and then the universe gets added to the set of existing things, which would be question-begging. I think you might be able to avoid that, but certainly I think there's an issue over whether you can support the first premise here. If you can translate it the other way... What you're really saying is whatever has a finite past must have a cause. The universe has a finite past, and that is something that Big Bang cosmology supports. And then you get the conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause. Um, so that's probably the way that I think you should interpret what Craig is saying. More recently, he's just started saying, um, if the universe has a finite past, then it has a cause. It does have a finite past, therefore it has a cause. He's actually used that way of formulating it in, in some debates. Uh, uh, following J.P. Moreland and others, I actually prefer to put the 
the emphasis on the, the fact that if the universe has a finite past, that means that there was a first physical event. And then argue that, that physical things, by their nature, are, are contingent, things that, that have to have explanations. But that, of course, the explanation for the first physical event can't be another physical event. There isn't a prior one. There it's, this is the first one. There aren't any others to appeal to. So, um, since the universe had a beginning, there was a first physical event. Physical events, being contingent, have at least one cause outside of themselves. So the first physical event had at least one cause outside of itself. But the cause of the first physical event can't have been a physical cause. So it must have been a non-physical cause. Those are the only two options. Um, And a non-physical cause of the physical universe must be a personal cause, an agent cause, as philosophers would say, because um, the only other option would be an abstract object, but by definition they don't enter into causal relations. Even if you agreed with Plato that, say, numbers exist, and you thought the number seven was a real thing, and that's controversial, but even if you thought that, you wouldn't think that the number seven ever caused anything, because <laughs> um, it's an abstract object rather than a a concrete object. So there's reasons to think that any non-physical cause of the physical universe must be personal, uh, and that's, again, a chunk of what we mean by God, a personal, non-physical cause of the whole physical cosmos. So, there are, again, there are a number of different ways of putting these arguments, and it can actually matter a great deal the precision of the terminology that you're using. Is there an ambiguity in the argument or not? Uh, in Craig's argument, can it be ironed out? How should you understand these things? Can you support the premises as more plausible than their denial? And if you can do all of those things, then they can enter into this accumulation of signposts from lots of different fields of study and experience that all point to the same conclusion. And that makes that conclusion all the more powerful because it's not just that you've got lots of signposts from one particular field of expertise or thinking pointing to a certain conclusion and you might then think well maybe there's some sort of systematic error or misunderstanding within this particular discipline and way of thinking about things but you're getting information from a a wide range of human experience and interaction with the world all the way from very abstract philosophical thinking in the ontological argument through our moral experience, through our scientific investigation of the complexity, the form, the, the finite pastness of the universe, uh, to thinking about um, conceptual um, principles of causality and how we explain the existence of things, all pointing to this conclusion that there's a God, indeed a gracious possible being, plausibly, um, who therefore could reveal himself, might possibly be able to do things within history that could give us a more detailed information about what our purpose in life is, how we're meant to relate to God, what role we play within his creation, uh, and so on. Uh, And that's where we come on to talking about resurrection. Yeah. And... and, uh... If you if you sign sign up there, you, you will also get these powerpoints, of course. So so if you have trouble making the full note of what you've been giving us, and you, of course you have a lot more than, than we will manage now to cover. But you you have this. Uh, 
notes. Can we get the PowerPoint? Yeah, yeah the PowerPoint. Huh? Can we get the PowerPoint even if we don't sign up? Is that possible or no? Yeah, yeah, but but you, you don't have to sign up for the course here. But you just get an email, and I, I make sure you you you'll get oh, okay. you get the. Uh, so this isn't a sign up for the credits. This is just this, if we want. Yeah, and and, and you can even make you know, just just the PDF if you like. So yeah, okay. If you sign up, we'll set, you'll send you the information about signing up for the credits, but you don't have to do it. But we'll yeah. send you everything. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think, well, uh, you see, this is uh, a philosopher's job, especially thinking about God. He, he could have gone a lot further on with this, but it's, it's very interesting uh, to me to see a philosopher looking at the question of History, which is the other question. So, so please, will you give us yeah. uh, an introduction to this and say, especially compared to what what um, Craig is doing? Mm, mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I'd like to recommend a secondary text if you want one, but this is the one I wrote, um, Understanding Jesus. I was talking to someone earlier about the argument from prophecy, saying I've got a chapter in there. I've got five different arguments again, in a cumulative case for the Christian understanding of Jesus, one of which is picking out the miracle of the resurrection as a particularly important miracle um, that confirms uh, Jesus' self-identity and, and um, the, what the gospel is that he's revealing uh, and so on. So it's particularly important in that way. And again, we're making this, this cumulative case when... in in the case of Jesus, I look at his, you know, his self-image, the kind of lunatic liar lord kind of argument, his miracles in general, the, the resurrection in particular, prophecy, religious experience. It all goes into the package, as it were. Um, and this, this is your argument and not Craig's. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Craig focuses on, on the resurrection and religious experience. Um, and I don't think uses, so the argument from prophecy, he might mention Jesus' um, miracles and, and exorcisms and so on, but he won't put any weight in the, in the argument upon that, uh, for instance. And he, won't, he doesn't use in his debates the lunatic liar lord argument, uh, which I think, when set out correctly, has, has some, some weight to it but it does require quite a lot of, of background to see that weight. And, of course, you don't have a lot of time in a 20-minute opening speech at a debate to say, you know, well, let me give you a first-year course in New Testament reliability first <laughs> in order to mount the argument. Um, this, again, is, is an area where actually it's interesting to point out um, Craig, building on, on Gary Habermas's work on this in particular, takes what's called the minimal facts approach to the resurrection, which is an approach that, that leaves to one side the issue of whether or not the New Testament is a, a generally reliable historical source of information about Jesus. He says, even granting for the sake of argument that the New Testament is a generally unreliable source of information about Jesus... Using certain standard historical criteria of authenticity, as they're called, things like, um, you know, it's better if we have multiple independent witnesses to something being true. We put more store by that than if we only have one witness. Um, if the witnesses tell us something that is embarrassing to them, to, to their case, 
that's probably reliable because people tend not to deliberately embarrass themselves and that, unless they're just admitting that that is what happened and so on. So you have these sort of standard historical criteria of authenticity which will allow us to put, uh, to assemble a set of data, historical data, that we should take into account in our discussions of what happened in history, um, even setting aside other questions that you might want to raise about what happened. Um, so we establish a sort of set of minimal facts that are agreed ground to be interpreted. Um, but our explanation, our interpretation of what the best explanation of this, this agreed data is that we've established on the basis of some agreed historical criteria will partially depend upon our worldview that we bring to the table. So, obviously, if we started as an atheist, a, you know, a firmly convinced atheist, one of our criteria in doing history might be will exclude the notion of miracles because obviously that's stupid because they can't happen because there isn't God who could work them. So why would you even bother thinking about it? You know, why would you waste your time? Um, and so you might get the same agreed set of data about Jesus' life and what happened at the end of it, but your explanation would, even if you said, well, I don't know what happened to Jesus, you might end up saying, it must have been some kind of combination of deceit or delusion. Um, I don't know what combination. I don't have an alternative explanation to the Christian one. But the one thing I do know is obviously it couldn't have been that Jesus rose from the dead because that would have been a miracle and miracles can't happen. And I think I've got good reasons for thinking that. There are stronger reasons than the argument that a miracle happened. Which is why it's very important that we've put this in the context of saying, we, actually, we've got good reasons for thinking there's a God who could miraculously reveal himself, so that we can't exclude the Christian interpretation of the resurrection a priori before we look at the evidence. What we have to do is say, let's be open-minded, let's look at the evidence. Maybe we should even say... We, we ought to first consider non-miraculous explanations for things. Even Christians do that in everyday life. We don't automatically or shouldn't automatically jump to, God did a miracle every five minutes. You know, even for Christians, by definition, miracles are rare things. Otherwise, we wouldn't call them miracles. But we should at least be open to inferring a miracle given sufficient motivating reasons. So if we came at it with theism as a background belief, you know, all the weight of the evidence for the resurrection can go into convincing us that the resurrection happened. None of the weight of that evidence would have to flow into convincing us to change our worldview, as well as to change our opinion of what happened in history. As Anthony Flew, uh, famous as a very famous atheist, who then towards the end of his life uh, became a very famous a theist, because he changed his mind on the matter, but he didn't uh, come to be a Christian. But even as an atheist, he said this, certainly given some beliefs about God, the occurrence of the resurrection does become enormously more likely. The importance of background beliefs in interpreting the data. Or Bart Ehrman, in debate with Bill Craig on the resurrection, says this, the reason the resurrection makes sense to Bill is because he's a believer in God. And so, of course, God can act in the world. Why not? Well, 
that presupposes a belief in God. Well, no, actually, even a a non-dogmatic form of atheism should be open to (laughs) miracles. Certainly agnosticism would have to be open to miracles. Certainly some kind of belief in God would leave you open to belief in miracles. The kind of rhetorical strategy here is interesting because Ehrman seems to be saying, look, yeah, yeah, Bill believes in, in God. So, you know, that, and no wonder he can believe in a stupid thing like a resurrection. Because anyone knows that's stupid. <laughs> kind of, though all the burden of proof is, is on him, is on Bill. But actually what Ehrman here is admitting is, in order for me to be rational in not believing in the resurrection and considering that argument seriously at least... I ought to have some pretty good reasons for thinking that there isn't a God who could have done a miracle. What he's really admitting is, well, the reason I don't take the resurrection seriously is because I don't believe in God, and maybe I ought to have some good reasons for that belief that I have a a, a duty to explain. (laughs) So I think he's sort of misattributing the burden of proof here on, on the issue. But it's nice to see that he, he, he's there admitting belief in Jesus' resurrection makes sense if you already believe in a God. But even that concession doesn't go quite far enough. So as Bill says, given that God who created the universe, miracles are evidently possible. Um, one thing I've noted in your worksheets here is, uh, again, this minimal facts approach will often sidestep the discussion about the general reliability of the Gospels or the dating of the Gospels or issues of like, you know, were the Gospels written so long after the events that they're probably not reliable or can we date them quite early in the first century so we think, oh, there's probably eyewitness testimony in there and this kind of thing. So forget all of that. Just think about things where New Testament scholars would say for various historical reasons that there are kind of nuggets, there are little passages within the New Testament that reflect earlier tradition. Things like the creed in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul, writing to the Corinthians in the 50s, mid-50s, says, when I was with you before, that we can date to the very early 50s, I handed on to you the tradition that was handed on to me much earlier, and many, even atheist scholars, will say, right in the 30s, right on top of the crucifixion. This formalization of the experiences of Jesus' passion. Um, and it, it, it takes some time to formulate these things, but that takes us right back then, ex- these experiences that end up in this formulation of creed that's passed on um, through Paul that we find in Corinthians. And in that creed, we get the information that Christ died, that he was buried that it was raised, which would imply, given the cultural beliefs, leaving an empty tomb behind, and that he appeared. And indeed, Paul's there says, doesn't he, you know, he appeared first to, to Cephas, the Aramaic name for Peter, another indication of the, the, the oldness of this account, and then to the Twelve, a group appearance, and then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at once, a group appearance. Actually, all of these indicate group appearances, Mark's gospel, the earliest gospel by common consent, again by common consent in New Testament studies, the passion story at the end is a long unit of story that is generally thought to be based upon a a, a passion source that predates Mark. 
that Mark incorporates into his gospel along with a lot of the teaching stories from, from Peter. But that the, the passion material predates Mark. Now, I mean, personally, I'd date Mark to 49. Other people would date it, date it later. But that's kind of irrelevant when you've got the fact that Mark incorporates this early passion source that, that goes back, for various reasons, people would say to, say to the 30s um, in Aramaic and so on that's then been put into Greek in this gospel. Or some of the speeches in Acts, which many scholars think... Uh, are reflections. They're not verbatim speeches. These things weren't in ancient history, but that these things do reflect original um, speeches that were then incorporated at a later date into Luke's narrative. And we have Peter's Pentecost sermon and Paul's sermon in Pisidian Antioch. And of course, Luke wrote at New Paul personally as well. Um, and Paul became a convert to Christianity two or three years after the crucifixion and then says he visited with the disciples in Jerusalem to check that he had the gospel right and they added nothing to me and so on and again scholars think he got this information summarised in the Corinthians Creed and so on you know, within um, just a, a matter of years of the crucifixion and that this reflects the eyewitness testimony So from all of these four early sources, you get this, Christ died, was buried, was raised, he appeared to groups of people. Uh, And we haven't even gone into the discussion about the general reliability and dating of the Gospels and all of that. We've done a complete end run around that issue. Giza Vermesh, a Jewish New Testament scholar who died um, earlier on this year, points out that the idea of the resurrection of the dead was a latecomer in Jewish thought, occupied only a small area of the broad religious canvas of the New Testament period. The New Testament completely altered the vista, changed the perspective. In the individual resurrection of one Jew, Jesus, predominates. Set in a time and space and integrated into history. This this isn't, you know, in the last days we will all be raised. This is, you know, under the reign of Pontius Pilate. (laughs) The situation is profoundly perplexing and the historian must come to grips with this puzzle. And in Vermesh's book on the resurrection, it's interesting that he admits the minimal facts that we're looking at. He looks at a number of alternative possible explanations and says none of those work. Right, moving on. (laughs) So these historical facts are so well evidenced, often by multiple criteria of authenticity that they represent the consensus of the relevant scholars who look on this across the worldview divides we're not talking about these are the opinions of conservative evangelical bible believing scholars this is these this is what you know members of the jesus seminar would sign their name next to Um, this is what atheist scholars jewish scholars would sign their name next to that Jesus died on a cross. It's been called uh, the most certain historical fact about Jesus. Indisputable. That Jesus' body was then buried in a tomb. That Jesus' tomb, that same tomb, was later found empty. And that various individuals and groups of people had experiences thereafter in which they sincerely believed at least the resurrected Jesus interacted with them 
that's just bedrock kind of historical data. The real discussion is what is the best explanation of that uh, data? And I'm going to skip the little clip from Gary Habermas and just do a little bit on some of the criteria that establish these things. Um, Jesus' death, John's eyewitness report of blood and water flowing out of Christ when he's speared. Um, medical knowledge at the time wouldn't have let him know this. He, he puts it there because it, I think it seems symbolic of the, the blood and the water of baptism. But actually, uh, doctors tell us that, that the, 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 the sort of collection of fluids around the pericardium sac around the heart and, and the lungs and so on, under the stress of the crucifixion, uh, could well have separated out the red blood cells from the plasma of blood and then speared when the spear to make sure that he's dead happens, reported by an eyewitness in John, of course, you would get this appearance of what John describes as blood and water, but it's actually you know, blood serum and, and the red separating out, which, which proves that Jesus was, was dead. Um, Charles Foster just reports the overwhelming conclusion of the mainstream literature, even of that written by virulent opponents of Christianity, is that Jesus did indeed die on the cross. Um, there's lots of reasons that you can go into for these things. Um, the burial in the tomb. Atheist scholar Gerd Ludemann, Jesus was obviously buried. There's the tradition of burial in Paul. It's a very old tradition and it's likely to be historical. Craig says even the most sceptical scholars acknowledge that Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, was probably the genuine historical individual who buried Jesus because it's unlikely that the early Christian believers would invent an individual, give him a name of a nearby town of origin, place that fictional character on the historical council of the Sanhedrin, whose members were well-known. You know, that is not the way to go up making, making up a story in Jerusalem in the 30s AD. <laughs> um, if you're going to make up someone who buried him, you want to say, oh, it was someone that none of you have heard of. Um, then you can't be proven wrong. <laughs> um, John Robinson says, Jesus' burial is one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus. Klaus Berger, the reports about the empty tomb are related by all four Gospels, multiple independent witnesses, and other writings in a form independent of one another. And that's a very important historical criteria. Vermesh, the, the evidence furnished by female witnesses had no standing in a male-dominated Jewish society. If the empty tomb story had been manufactured by the primitive church... Uh, to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection or something like this. You know, they just made it up for some reason that we concoct. One would have expected a uniform and foolproof account attributed to patently reliable witnesses, i.e. men in that culture. Um, just culturally speaking, the fact that they uniformly, in multiple independent accounts, say it was women that discovered that the tomb was empty for them in that cultural situation was an embarrassing admission. And you say find in John's Gospel, the latest one, uh, the account of Peter and John running to the tomb and checking. So it's all right, you know, actually some of the guys did check, so you can rely on it. But the earliest reports make this kind of... The tomb was found, it was some women. Moving on, you know. <laughs> but by the criteria of embarrassment, actually that's quite a significant um, fact there. 
Craig Evans, the consensus of scholarship affirms the historicity of the empty tomb. It's widely recognised that the tomb being empty is just a simple historical fact. The appearance is, again, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-9, this creed that Paul quotes is hugely uh, significant here. Uh, I've put his interpolations into the yellow, but you find things like the, the poetical structure of it, the way it neatly translates back into Aramaic, the fact that it mentions Cephas instead of Peter, the, the Greek equivalent of the name, uh, and the historical tracing that we can do of where Paul likely got the information from after his conversion and so on. Again, that it was, it was liberal scholarship that, that hit upon this fact, that this creed gives us very early information Um, early eyewitness testimony if Jesus was crucified in 33, 1 Corinthians dated to 54 he passed it on to them originally in 50 and most scholars think Paul probably received this creed in Jerusalem from Peter and James about AD 35 at which time they'd already formulated it as a creed for passing on for inductions of people into Christianity um, so it must have been there even earlier. <laughs> uh, James D.G. Dunn, a uh, well-respected New Testament scholar, says this tradition, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. Pinchus Lapide, Jewish New Testament scholar, says um, it may be considered as a statement of eyewitnesses. Fascinating stuff. Um, given its early date, Paul's personal acquaintance with the people involved this list of eyewitnesses quoted by Paul guarantees that such appearances occurred, i.e. that people had such experiences that they reported. <coughs> We're not saying those experiences were vertical, that they really met the resurrected Jesus, but we are saying they definitely thought they had met the resurrected Jesus. And of course many of them would then stake their lives, and some of them give their lives, on the basis of that claim. Um, you can also point to various independent attestations of the appearances all, all over the shop. Um, Reginald Fuller, these experiences of seeing Jesus is a fact upon which both believer and unbeliever may agree. For Mesh again, no doubt the New Testament characters believed in the reality of their visions of Jesus. Um, E.P. Saunders that Jesus' followers and later Paul had resurrection experiences is in my judgment a fact what the reality was that gave rise to the experiences I don't know I believe they had some sort of experience says Anthony Flair but what's the best explanation of that historical bedrock N.T. Wright summarises it like this he says historical investigation brings us to the point where we must say that the tomb previously housing a thoroughly dead Jesus was empty and that his followers saw and met someone they were convinced was the same Jesus bodily alive though in a new transformed fashion what's the best explanation Wright in his magnum opus on this argues the historian may and must say that all other explanations for why Christianity arose and took the shape it did are far less convincing as historical explanations than the one the early Christians gave that Jesus really did rise from the dead. The sort of reasoning historians characteristically employ arguing to the best explanation um, 
points strongly towards the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Um, I like thinking about this in terms of Occam's razor. Here's William of Occam, having used his razor. Um, the famous metaphysical principle that says when you have alternative competing explanations, if, if the only difference between them is that one's simpler than the other, they're both equally adequate as explanations, but one's simpler, choose to believe the simpler one. Otherwise, you, know, you, can, you can just multiply an infinity of possible explanations, um, but you have to have some sort of way of picking between them. So always pick the simplest adequate explanation, although the adequacy of your explanations is more important than their simplicity. So you don't say, uh, yeah, my explanation is completely inadequate to explaining the facts, but it's a lot simpler than yours. You know, you don't say that. You, you might say, my explanation is a lot more complicated than yours, but it's the only one that adequately explains the facts. But if we both say, both of our explanations are completely adequate, but mine's simpler, then we go with mine. See? Now, the resurrection, the Christian explanation, is clearly an adequate explanation. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then you would expect to see the evidence that we do find that he was dead, that having been buried, he wasn't there anymore, well, obviously, because he's been raised, and that people could meet him and report experiences of meeting him. Um, Well, if he was raised from the dead and went and met people, well, of course they'd report those experiences. Okay, so it's an adequate explanation. There is no simpler adequate explanation or simpler, more adequate explanation on offer. He's a vermesh. All in all, none of the six suggested alternative theories that he looks at in his book on the resurrection stands up to stringent scrutiny. There's no plausible alternative explanation. Um, Charles Hartshorn, a philosopher, having decided to reject all miracle claims, this is, I'm not going to even consider miracle claims, miracles can't happen, he comments, it is remarkable that a crucified man, the cultural shame of crucifixion, why on earth would you you go on following a crucified bloke, uh, that a crucified man should have been the source of so vast a company of believers? I cannot explain this convincingly. I don't have an alternative. Anthony Flew, I don't think it's possible to offer any satisfactory naturalistic account of what happened. He says, when he was an atheist, the world's leading atheists. Um, Perhaps the leading attempt for a naturalistic explanation is to say, okay, people had those experiences, but it was some kind of delusion. They obviously weren't lying, they were sincere. They had some kind of hallucination. But first of all, that doesn't cover the empty tomb. You need a separate hypothesis to explain, well, why is the tomb empty? Is that a hallucination as well? One admitted even by the opponents of Christianity? Because their explanation for the empty tomb wasn't, oh, no, it's not empty. The body's still there. Look, these guys are all off their heads. It was, yeah, the tomb's empty, but the the disciples stole the body, which is a tacit admission that the tomb's empty. So you you now need a separate hypothesis to explain that. Um, Also, the hallucination hypothesis says nothing to explain the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. Why didn't the disciples, even if they had subjective visions of Jesus, why didn't they say, um, Jesus has been brought into the bosom of Abraham, he's been assumed into heaven like some of the prophets of old? 
and he will come back at the general resurrection of the dead at the end of history and be God's judge. Something like this. Why did they go to saying Jesus has been resurrected before the end of history? That is such an un-Jewish, as the quote from Giza Vermesh we were looking at, such a Jewish, un-Jewish concept. And certainly not a Greek concept. N.T. Um, Wright puts a lot of emphasis on this in his book. He says, how do you explain them going to this, this concept of resurrection within history unless there was some powerful launch pad for that belief? And what better explanation than that they met a resurrected Jesus and it completely turned their thought world upside down. (coughs) For someone in the ancient world, says Craig, visions of the deceased are not evidence that the person is alive, but evidence that they're dead. (laughs) And again, um, Craig goes into more detail about having some standard criteria of how you make an inference to the best explanation against things like explanatory power being adequate to explain the data, explanatory scope. Um, The more bits of data your explanation encompasses, the better. Um, Not being ad hoc or contrived. He says, particularly if you already believe that God exists, you're not having to add an extra assumption about reality in order for your explanation to work. Um, outstripping the rivals at meeting all of these criteria. Um, So he goes into a bit more detail about how you make these inferences to the best explanation. And Michael Lycona, in his recent book on the resurrection, um, puts a particular emphasis on on the sort of philosophy of history and how we should go about making inferences to the best explanation. And then that's the right way of going about making historical arguments in particular. So there we go, the minimal facts approach to arguing for the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, thank you very much, Peter. This is very helpful. Um, and the material in, in Craig's book is actually very good. And he's revised this book mm. across many years of debating and researching. So, so the quality is mm. very, very high. Uh, and of course, maybe of you, you as well, in your bookshelves, has, have quite a few books by people who have been kind of tricked into a discussion about the resurrection and come out on the other side. Because it's, it's an issue you can discuss on historical, uh, on the historical kind of plane. It involves the bigger philosophical question of God's existence, but, but it kind of gets you into the discussion. And it makes us vulnerable. Well, if God didn't, didn't, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to be Christians. So you can invite people in, even to challenge, uh, challenge the whole thing, and be open. Well, convince me. So <laughs> it's a very, very efficient and helpful thing. And these days, it's, they are, it's very exciting to be Christians looking at the research of the New Testament. Fifty years ago, that was quite different. Um, but there's so much being done here, and Craig is giving us something. You mentioned some other mm. authors, so really encourage you to, to work with this. Uh, and, and you can still sign up here. If you just want the PowerPoint from here, just sign just <coughs> up. And, and uh, you will not be bothered with the information about registration and so on.